we are not actually speaking from Isaiah 42. It is um, a corollary passage to the text we'll be looking at this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 26 again. So you can turn to Acts 26. We will reference Isaiah 42 a little later. But we are continuing our study in in the book of Acts. So we're going to be looking at specifically, if I may just point out the specific verses we'll be looking at, uh, we're going to be looking at verse 16, uh, 16 through uh, 18. Yeah, 16 to 18 this morning. But let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Lord, help us as we continue in our study in the book of Acts that we will be uh, people with soft hearts people that have hearts to receive what you have to say. I pray that you will help us to see with spiritual eyes the truth uh, that the text that you have given to us this morning says. And uh, Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that we will recognize uh, your working in Paul's life as well as your working in our life. And so Lord, I pray that you will give us insight and understanding and wisdom and also that you will give us the appropriate response in worship to you, to what you have to declare. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to start reading in Acts 26, 12 and read through 18 this morning, although we're going to be looking at 16 to 18. We've looked at at, um, 12 through 14 already, and 15 kind of folds into 14 that we have already looked at. So, But just for context's sake, we'll start reading in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. Paul is speaking. He's giving his defense in front of Agrippa, just so you're reminded. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At noonday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's our text for this morning. Again, we're going to be looking at 16 to 18 this morning. You'll recognize that we didn't really examine closely verse 15, but when we looked at verse 14 several weeks ago, we folded the end of or verse 15 into the passage in verse 14. And so we're, we're not going to reiterate um, the statement in verse 15 at this point in time, but jump into verse 16 through 18 this morning. Now, when I, when I uh, go to this passage this morning, it obviously is in the greater context of this story that started in chapter 21. We'll go all the way to chapter 26, or the sub-story of, of Paul's defense in front of King Agrippa. This is one part of that, su- that sub-story. So it's a sub-sub-story. I guess we could put it that way. 
I wrestled with whether I just wanted to camp on this section, these three short verses, and I decided to do so because there's a lot of really important things being said in this text. And it's important that I think that we today, as 21st century Christians in America, hear this. This is Paul's testimony. It's an expanded testimony from what you read in Acts chapter 9. And we mentioned that several weeks ago, that it's expanding, there's new data coming out. But what we find in the text is Paul presents his testimony of what God did in his life in transforming him from being a lost sinner to being a saved person. His descriptions that he gives in 16 to 18 are really remarkable. Remarkable not so much as in the idea that it doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture because it does. What we have here is three verses that are jam-packed with theology. And it's crucial that we unpack that theology, understanding that it's in the midst of a testimony, that's in the midst of a bigger defense, that's in the midst of this massive story of Paul's imprisonments. And so we don't want to miss the context that he's speaking into his testimony, but we also don't want to fall into the trap of looking at it like we so often do, that it is merely his testimony. What do, I, what, do I, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is here's how it usually pans out. If you ever sit in the midst of a meeting and somebody gets up and gives their testimony, here's what you hear. You hear someone tell the story of their conversion, right? And in the midst of all that, you find yourself merely doing what usually? How's the, what's the response usually? That's really great, right? Amen. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad God saved you, right? That's the response. And it's an appropriate response, isn't it? We should rejoice that someone has been moved from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, correct? But it usually doesn't go any further than that, does it? We don't probe it any deeper than that, do we? Typically, we do not. In Paul's testimony that he's giving King Agrippa and all the rest of the people that listen, it's interesting that Paul's testimony is not primarily the events that took place in his life. His testimony is primarily theological. This text is, it's not just this text, the earlier part of the text is as well, it's dripping with rich theology. It's one of the things I always get troubled by when I listen to testimonies. Because when I hear testimonies too often, I scratch my head and I say, either there was basically no truth there, except for I got saved, and I was a sinner. Which, that's good, right? Or the theology that's being talked about by the person giving his testimony is not correct. It's not based upon truth. It's based upon, quite to the contrary, what do you think? Feelings and experience. Something that's always really troubled me. You see, testimony should be instructive, not just, hey, I want to dust off the, the dusty recesses of my experience and tell you about it so you can think it's really cool. Or that somehow you can rejoice even though it's devoid of truth. Our testimonies ought to be dripping with truth. 
And part of that truth should be, it should be dripping with, what did you say, Rusty? Gospel, right? It should be, most testimonies are focused on who? The person. The one who is forgiven, not the one who is forgiving, right? And who has forgiven. It's wrong-headed from the get-go. Your testimony is not about you. Your testimony is about the one who worked. Because who did the work? Christ did. You received. Christ worked. That's the, that's the real testimony, isn't it? And in the midst of that, that's what we would expect to hear Paul talk about, wouldn't we? We'd expect him to talk theologically. We'd expect him to be focused on Christ, wouldn't we? Now, he does give the data about the road to Damascus. We saw that. This is what happened on the road to Damascus. This is the events that transpired. I was walking along to persecute Christians, to arrest Christians, to torture Christians, to kill Christians, to get Christians to blaspheme. That does not put him in a good light, does it? Not at all. And then God moved. Isn't that what he says? And from that point on, it's all about who? It's all about Jesus, isn't it? Now, he's in it, but it's what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what he will do. Does that make sense so far? So let me read again 16 to 18, and then we're going to spend some time in those verses. Jesus speaking to Paul, to Saul, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to appoint or I'm sorry, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's a lot of theology there. And that passage is just dripping with theological truth. I want you to notice firstly, somewhat as an aside, but really not, it is interesting when when. Jesus appears to Saul and calls out to him on the road to Damascus, he falls on his face. Remember the story? Why do you think he fell on his face? Because even though he doesn't realize yet, right? He doesn't even realize that he's in the presence of living God. But he recognizes somehow something supernatural is going on. And he falls on his face, and the Scriptures tell us he falls on his face in fear, doesn't he? Terror. Verse 16, God speaks to him. Jesus speaks to him and says in 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. Which is interesting. If 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 I may play this a little bit off, in the Old Testament you have Moses at the burning bush And God tells him to do what? Take his shoes off. Why? Because he's standing on holy ground. And why is it holy ground? Is it because the bush is burning? Why? 
Because God is there, right? And because man cannot stand before God. Add, add a few more words. Because sinful man be, cannot stand before a holy God, right? And what does he say to, to, Saul, to Saul here? Stand up. Why is that? Because his sins are, he's forgiven. What did you say, Lois? Because of Christ, he's forgiven. The one who is speaking to him says, stand up. Why? Because he's forgiven. If I may take another passage in, we can come how to the throne of grace? Boldly before the throne of grace, right? What a contrast between Moses. I mean, certainly in, in Moses' day, they were sacrificing and all the rest, but that sacrifice did what? It covered, looking forward to that day that sin would really be atoned for, right? As it were that Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God, would lift up that rug that it had, had all the sin swept underneath it by the sacrifices of the lambs and would be all swept out, swept clean by Jesus. And the rug no longer has this grotesque, fatal hump in it anymore. Right? And now for the first time, for the first time, not literally the first time because other people have been saved, but you get the idea. Someone who absolutely believed in the Old Testament sacrifices. Did he not? He was a sacrificer. But for the first time, his sins are actually atoned for. His sins are actually dealt with, removed as far as the east is from the west. No more covering. It's erased from the ledger. It is very appropriate for Jesus to say, stand on your feet. It's very appropriate. There was no place in the Old Testament to stand on your feet before God. As a matter of fact, no one could even go into the Holy of Holies except for the, the chief priest and only how often a year? Once a year to, 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 uh, to bring in the, the, the sacrifice and, 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 and to cry out to God to forgive the sins of the people, right? And it was only by the mercy of God that he could go because his sins were not yet atoned for either, were they? Absolutely not. The sacrifice we're looking forward to the perfect Lamb of God that had been prophesied. But here, Saul has said, get up off your, off, your, off your face. Get off the ground. Stand on your feet. The older brother is speaking to the younger brother for the first time. The younger adopted brother for the first time. And you know what he's saying? in effect, by saying, stand on your feet? You know what he's saying? He's saying, you and I, we have fellowship. That's what he's saying. We have fellowship. We can enjoy one another. Because my sacrifice was satisfying to the wrath of God. Amen? That's amazing stuff, isn't it? We haven't gotten into the text yet. 
<laughs> this is just almost an aside in comparison to what we're going to find next. But rise and stand upon your feet. And he goes on and he says, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness and witness to the things which you have seen me, in which you have seen me, and to those which I will appear to, in which I will appear to you. We're going to stop right there for a second. After telling him to stand on his feet, he says something very interesting. Now, some of the things that are in this text we need to understand are very Paul-specific. We've got to sort out the Paul-specific from the universal statements for believers. Because it is his testimony, right? So there are some things that are very unique for Saul, later to be Paul, that don't apply to us. For example, verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Is that unique to Saul? Well, yeah. That's not, that's not a promise to us, is it? Well, first of all, the Jews literally are not our people by blood, although we are spiritual Israel. That's a whole other issue. But the idea of delivering, certainly what did God do repeatedly for, for, for Paul? Delivered him repeatedly, didn't he? He absolutely did. Why? For what purpose? So that he could do what? Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world, right? Primarily to the Gentiles, but also to Jews, but primarily to the Gentiles. That's, for example, a, a, a Saul or Paul specific statement, that idea of delivering. But I want you to notice there's some things in the text in verse 16 that we ought to recognize, and I know that some of these may be a little controversial, and that's okay. We can live with that. But I want you to hear it. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I, we're, we're, let me stop for a second. We're going to break these the 16 to 18 into two parts. Okay, and You're going to see those two parts as we walk, work our way through this. The first part is found in verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I just want to stop on that for a second. This statement is not Saul-specific. This is really important as we work through the testimony of Saul. I want you desperately to hear this. Jesus said to Saul, I have appeared to you for this purpose. Now this purpose is explained in the text further, correct? And we've seen it lived out in, Saul, in Paul throughout chapter 11 through now chapter 26, correct? And we'll see it all the way through chapter 28, won't we? But I want to move it away from Saul slash Paul for a moment because this statement is not Saul specific. It is a generic or universal statement to all who believe. I want you to notice the statement. But rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I want to make it abundantly clear this statement is carried about elsewhere in the Scriptures. You find it repeatedly stated. And that is, He saved you. He appeared to you. Correct? He may not have appeared in a light on the road to Damascus. As a fact, I'd expect that it didn't happen to anybody. But He appeared to you. And we know that, right? Because the Bible says you were what? Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and 
Remember what, what he said that he's going to send a, the Holy Spirit, right? Acts chapter 1. He's going to send the Holy Spirit as his representative, right? When you were saved, you were saved because the Holy Spirit did what? He regenerated you, which means he was at work in you, right? And on you. He, uh, as it were, appeared to you, didn't He? Oh, you didn't see it with physical eyes. You didn't see Him with physical eyes, did you? It doesn't change the appearance. It doesn't change the fact of the appearance, does it? For, for Saul, it was Jesus speaking to him and being in a light on the road to Damascus. That was His, right? Right? Yours was different. Your, his was an anomaly. Yours is the ordinary spiritual way of things. And mine is the ordinary spiritual way of things. This is how the Spirit ordinarily works. According to the Scriptures, this is how the Spirit ordinarily works for, in taking someone from death to life. To life. Does that make sense? But it was still because the Holy Spirit appeared, right? This could never have happened to you on your own. You couldn't have started the process. You couldn't have continued the process. You couldn't have completed the process. Do you realize that? You couldn't have started. I'm going to say it again. You couldn't have started. You couldn't have continued. You couldn't have completed the process of your, of your salvation, that is, your justification. You couldn't have. That was all the Spirit working on you. Do we respond to that? Yes. And even that is by the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Absolutely. He had to appear because you in your natural state, and I, in my natural state, were dead in our trespasses and sins. He appeared. This theological truth absolutely needs to resonate in us. And by the way, if I may just say this with regard to testimonies, if that is true, what does that say about our testimony? In light of what we just talked about. It's all God, isn't it? It's all God. Not me. It's all God. He appeared to you. He, it says right there, I have appeared to you. Notice the statement goes on. And this is where it gets especially intriguing. God says to Saul, I appeared to you for this purpose. In other words, if I may just say it this way, when God saved Saul, when Jesus appeared to Saul, He saved him. He, that's what it means. Appeared to him. He appeared to him. He saved him. And His saving of Saul was not purposeless. Now, we all know that because we've already been through chapter 11-26. Correct? Saul's 
saving, that is the saving of Saul by Jesus, had a purpose. That is absolutely essential that we understand that when we talk about Saul. And his purpose, as we know, it says right here in the text, his purpose was for him to do what? To go to the Gentiles and do what? Build tents and sell tents, right? And live life and have a big time and go on tours. And see, and see the beauties of the ancient world. Ancient Near East, right? That's what it was for, wasn't it? Right? And to eat exotic food. And to tour prisons. <laughs> Gotta throw that one in, right? And be a rock collector. <laughs> no. I love the fact that it's, it's first of all, it's singular, for this purpose. Saul was saved. Jesus appeared before Saul for a purpose. That is a singular purpose. When I say a, as in a purpose, it doesn't mean it's an indefinite purpose. It's, it says this purpose. It's a singular purpose. And what is the purpose? It's to go to the Gentiles... It's, it's actually two purposes, but they're the same purpose. Primarily, it's to go to the Gentiles, right? And do what? Preach the Gospel. Isn't it? It was also to go to the Jews as well, wasn't it? For what purpose? To preach the Gospel. So it's the same purpose, right? But there are subtly different purposes because for the most part, it was to go to the Jews so that they would what? So the Jews would what? Reject the Gospel. That was the primary purpose. It's kind of an Isaiah-esque ministry to the, to the, and a Jeremiah-esque ministry to the uh, Jews. Even more so. So that he could fulfill the purpose, the true purpose, which was to go to the Gentiles with the Gospel. Why do I emphasize that? Because I think there's an important point being made here. You'll notice that I said there are some things in this text that are Saul-specific. For example, this deliverance thing. i got something in my eye. And they always say don't rub, it, don't rub your eye, right? But everybody does. Right, right, Ken? You get stuff in your eye all the time, don't you? And in your hand. He had a very specific thing that he's called to, which is Saul-specific. I would submit to you, however, in 16, the appearing is not Saul-specific. It's all who believe the, the Lord appears to. But for all also who believe that the Lord appears to, He saves them he appears to them, or to make it more personal, He appeared to you and He appeared to me for a purpose. In other words, friends, He did not save you for no purpose. 
He didn't say, before the foundation of the world, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to save a few people in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, and the Godhead talking together. Why? Well, I just feel like it. Could I add to that, however, he did not, the purpose, let me, let me step back, the purpose for why you and I were saved, the purpose for why God appeared to us is not merely so we could not go to hell, but instead go to heaven. That's not the reason why He saved us. Oh, certainly it's true, isn't it? It's not why He saved us. This text would deny that completely, even though it's, it's, it is um, Saul-specific in some ways. More, more than not, it is not Saul-specific. We need to start with an understanding first that it is God who worked in us and toward us. It's not us who worked towards God. We already talked about that. We need to understand He worked towards us and in us for a purpose. It's important that we recognize this. You, if you are a saved person, are saved because God God appeared to you, and in appearing to you, He appeared to you for a purpose and therefore saved you for a purpose. Have you ever asked yourself that, this really huge question in light of that? Why did He save me? I hope you have. Because we certainly don't deserve it, do we? We deserve death, right? We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell for eternity. And yet, He saved us. And He saved us, and it's not just in this text, it's everywhere through the Scriptures, He saved us for a purpose. And that purpose, of course, is His purpose. As we work our way through this text, before we get beyond this, I want to say something that's really important. When he talks about his purpose, he saved us for his purpose. Please understand, there's more theology behind that statement for his purpose that I need to talk about. And that is this. When it says he saved us for this purpose, the implication of this purpose is that it's God's purpose, right? It's God's purpose. And the implication behind it's God's purpose is this. If He has a purpose for my being saved, it means that He's got a plan. Does that make sense? He's got a plan. And the purpose for me fits into His plan. Does that make sense? His purpose for me is part of His plan. That's why in His plan, He appeared to me. Does that make sense? So that His purpose would what? Would prevail. Yes, would prevail. Because the Scriptures tell us that God uses means, correct? 
And that, those means are oftentimes people. Sometimes he uses Balaam's ass, right? Sometimes he uses the sun standing still, doesn't he? Sometimes he uses hailstones, doesn't he? Sometimes he uses water, opening it up and closing it. There's no question, sometimes he uses inanimate objects, doesn't he? Absolutely he does. But his primary means, inevitably, is what? Humans. It's inevitably humans. Why? Because although the heavens declare the glory of God, do they not? And the firmament surely shows, about, shows off his, his handiwork, right? Day unto day, night unto night, doesn't it? But what does Romans 1 say about all that? All of his creation serves the purpose of doing what? Leaving man without excuse. Without excuse. You see, in other words, there's no gospel in that. Right? There's no gospel in that. There's merely condemnation in that. But God has chosen as His normal means of declaring Christ and Christ's finished work on the cross, it is what? Humans. Isn't it? How shall they hear unless there is a, a preacher, right? A presenter. Pretty clear, isn't it? So why do I bring all that up? Because in 16 when it says, I have appeared to you for this purpose, and then right afterwards he says, to appoint you, <laughs> interesting piling on of words there that are very theological. The idea is, firstly, that God is at work. Secondly, He's saving you. He's working on you. And thirdly, He's doing it for a purpose. And behind the purpose is that He has a plan. Right? And lastly, we need to understand, and this is where it gets a little controversial. And that is, His plan can never be thwarted. We could argue that throughout the Scriptures. When God ordains, God being God, God being sovereign, God being all-powerful, God's plan has to come to fruition, doesn't it? It must. It absolutely must. And so it's really crucial that we get this. Number one, if He has saved us, He saved us for a purpose. And, it, and He did it because He worked on us. Number two, behind that purpose again is a plan of God. And ultimately, God's plan always comes to fruition. And we know that. We really do. We all know that, right? God's plan is that all... Let me give you a couple examples. Number one, out of all the Father gives Jesus what? None are lost. He loses none. That sounds like a plan, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like a plan? You know what that means? 
simply said, all that the Father gives Jesus are, are going to be what? Saved. And, and as a result, they will also, thank you, they will also persevere how long? To the end. They will persevere to the end. So all those that the Father gives Jesus will ultimately what? They will be in glory, won't they? So they, in other words, if I may sum it up with three theological terms, they will be justified, won't they? And if they're justified, they will be sanctified, won't they? And if they are justified and sanctified, they will be glorified. Why? Because God's plan always comes to fruition. Could I submit to you, there is absolutely nothing that could have stopped Jesus Christ from being crucified. There is no power anywhere that could have stopped Jesus from being crucified. Why? Because it's God's plan. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to return. Do you believe that? Do you realize why he's going to return? Yeah, our typical answer is he's going to return for his children, right? That's why he's going to return, to get his children, right? Ultimately, although that's true, ultimately... He's going to return because it was His plan. And His plan always comes to fruition. And it's not like He's going to try repeatedly and it's going to be thwarted and then finally He's going to break through. That day is, is, is decided from before the foundation of the world. And that minute and that second is decided. And when it comes, you know what's going to happen? He's coming. You know Why? Because it's decreed. That's right. Because it's, it was planned. And God's plan always comes to fruition. With all that in mind, see, this is really important. Because it, too often I hear Christians talk about the idea that you can thwart God's plan somehow, and you cannot. And I cannot. It's foolishness to think so. If you can thwart God's plan, you know what that says about you? You're God. That's what that means. And God is subservient to you. Always will, always has been. And that's not true. That's heresy at the highest degree. God is sovereign and you're not. Or to put it a different way, God is God and you're not. Right? And so we see in verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet Jesus tells Saul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And then he goes on, to appoint you as a servant and witness of the things in which you have seen, in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Stop at the end of 16. That sounds very Saul-specific, doesn't it? It is not. It is referencing Saul very strongly, isn't it? But look at it a little more closely. To appoint you as a servant and witness. Huh. We can go on. To the things in which you have seen me. I want to go back to where we started this morning. Has God appeared to you? Yes. God the Holy Spirit has appeared to you. It's not Saul-specific, is it? 
have we been called to be a servant? A servant of who? A servant of God, right? We are absolutely, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the New Testament, we are called that and called to that, are we not? So is Saul. Appointed as a servant and a witness of what you've seen. Are we called to be a servant of Christ and a witness for what we've seen with regard to Christ? Yeah. There's no question. It's pretty clear. You can't deny it. It's undeniable, isn't it? And when he goes on and says, and and to those in which I will appear to you, you know what? We could say, well, that surely is Saul-specific, right? And the answer is no. Look up here. I see some of you taking down notes. Look up here. No. (laughs) You know what I'm saying, right? Here's what I'm saying. This is not just what happened. It says here, appoint uh, to be a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, past tense, right? Talking about the road to Damascus, the initial events of his salvation, right? That applies to you at the initial events of your salvation, correct? Direct crossover. And to the things in which, uh, uh, and and to those in which I will appear to you, does He not appear to us, the Spirit, all the time through the truth of His Word? Does He not? He absolutely does. Do you ever discover by the Spirit? when you're in the Scriptures or contemplating the Scriptures, thinking about the Scriptures, do you ever discover anything new that you hadn't seen before? I hope all the time. You don't really think that's your great wisdom pulling that stuff out, do you? You don't really think that's merely your brain synapses firing really well, do you? Really? Do you remember Isaiah 55? His ways are higher than our ways, isn't He? How much higher? As high as the heavens are above the earth. You really think that's your brain synapses working on their own, pulling this stuff out? These things are, let's just try it, these things are blank discerned. Spiritually discerned. You believe that? That's the Spirit working in you. Do you realize that? And you've been called, Saul was called to be a what? A servant and a witness of the things he saw and the things he will see. As a matter of fact, he wasn't just called, he was appointed, wasn't he? This was the very purpose by which he was called, right? By which he was saved. This is really good stuff. This is really important stuff. He was called for a purpose. And appointed for that purpose. And that's not unique to Saul. 
Because the Scriptures tell us the exact same thing. We were saved for a purpose. And we also are appointed to be a, a servant and a witness. That's what the Scriptures say. Verse 17, again, this gets to be probably a little bit more Saul-specific, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. But notice, to whom I'm sending you. He's being sent. Right? He's being sent to the Gentiles. But if there is a purpose for our salvation and an appointment with regard to that purpose, and it is to be a servant of God and witness of the things we've seen about God, do you think that God would be that much of a failure to forget to send you? Do you think that He'd be sitting up in heaven and say, whoa! Heavenly Council! Trinitarian God, let's get together! Guess what we forgot? We forgot to send Lois! We appeared to her. We made sure she was part of the plan. We appointed her for that purpose to be a, a servant and a witness, but ha, we forgot to send her. Too late now. I mean, it's ludicrous at its face, isn't it? And lest we miss the point, Acts chapter 1.8. But you will be witnesses. Let's make it really personal. But Lois, you shall be witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Right? So he has sent, hasn't he? He has. Interesting perspective, isn't it? To whom I am sending you. But notice what he says about this sending, which ties directly back into the purpose. Now this is what I love about this whole passage, verse 18. Because in this passage, verse 18, not only do we have this continuing on with a purpose, but secondly, remember I said there's two things I want to point out. This whole purpose thing is number one. I told you I'd tell you what they were. The whole purpose thing is number one. And number two, we find in verse 18 probably one of the more robust descriptions, at least in a concise way, of a description of what the Gospel really is. And we could probably have a whole message easily just on this one, if not four or five, which we will not do. I'm sending you, verse 18, it doesn't stop there with sending you. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Interesting statement in verse 18. He tells Saul in the Saul-specific thing about the Gentiles, <clears throat> he's sending him, but he's also sending us because he saved us for a purpose, and this is the purpose. Why? 
And this is where I had Tom read Isaiah 42. Because you'll notice in verse 18, the opening statement is to open their eyes. I hope that catches your attention. Because where do we start out? Who does the the justifying work? God does, right? God does the justifying work. Why? Because I am naturally dead in my trespasses and sins. And yet, the very first statement about this sending to, to Saul is, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn. Wait a second. I can't do that. Maybe Saul did have a special thing. Maybe this thing has nothing to do with me. Verses 16 to 18. Maybe this is just Saul. And I, this doesn't apply to me at all. Maybe he did just save me so I'd go to heaven and don't go to hell. No. What Isaiah 42, as well as chapter 37, which I didn't have Tom read this morning, is very much Christological passages. They're very much talking about the Messiah that is to come, that was to come, that has come, Jesus Christ. And God says about His, send, His Messiah He is going to send is He's sending Him to open their eyes. Did you hear Tom when he read that? That's, what, that's the exact quote. He's sending Jesus to open their eyes. Okay, you got it? That's His role. Now He's going to... I'm sorry? No, no, Isaiah 42 is sending Jesus. Yes, Isaiah 42 is sending Jesus, the Messiah, to open their eyes. You're right, Tom. Here it talks about, about Saul, doesn't it? But in Isaiah, it's talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah. What's the point? The point is, the only way that Saul could open people's eyes is what? Well, his eyes need to be opened, but that's not the reason. Because God will open their eyes as they hear the Gospel. That's it. In other words, Saul slash Paul is a tool because remember what we said in the beginning? God uses means. Saul is the means whereby the Holy Spirit, follow me carefully, already at work that's important already at work in that lost person hears with ears that now can receive the truth of the gospel and by the spirit does what responds by believing right because he was given the faith to believe that makes sense that's the process Generally summed up. Why do I describe it this way? Because what God in effect is saying is, you have an amazing privilege coming up, Saul. What an honor. It is the absolute highest honor. There is no higher honor that any human could have. And what is that honor? That honor is to be a tool to proclaim to dead people that the Spirit will actually use according to His plan 
that people therefore would be saved, would be justified. It is a stunning perspective. What is he saying? He's saying we were saved. Every single person who's ever been saved has been saved so that they too can what? Can enjoy the privilege, the honor. To be able to say something that the Spirit will actually use for the transformation in someone else's life. It is something that you and I could not in a million years hope to accomplish. Do you realize that? I mean, I can cut somebody's hair and change their looks. <laughs> right? It won't be good, but I can cut someone's hair and change their looks. I can, I can actually force somebody, perhaps, to put on some articles of clothing that I think would look good on them. It may not. But again, I can change their looks, right? I can hogtie somebody and put makeup on them. And I will change their looks, won't I? I can dye their hair. And change their looks, can't I? Every one of those are going to be forced, won't they? Right? Most likely, every single one of those things are going to be against your will. <laughs> Stephanie, you bet it will be. <laughs> I'm really good at uh, one haircut. Yeah. But you know the one thing is that I can't do? I could never hope to take you from death to life. I couldn't. Can't. It's impossible. I could never even dream about being a tool to see that happen. Beyond my wildest dreams. Dead is dead, isn't it? And dead will always remain dead. And there's nothing I can do about that, is there? Whether it's physical death or spiritual death, there's nothing I can do about that. And yet God in His mercy has decided to have a plan. It's crazy. Because it would involve me. And it involves you as a believer. It involves us. <laughs> did He need to do that? He didn't, did He? Not at all. But he did. What an amazing thing that he said, I've appointed you to what? To be witness. Servant. Servant and witness. And I will send you in that purpose to do what? Something you can't do. <laughs> Something you can't do, but because of Christ, in spite of the fact you can't do it, I will use you and cause it to be done. What a stunning perspective. To open their eyes. And, what is, and it, what's interesting, he describes even in this text what it means to have eyes open. Now these are really important statements. What does it mean to have open eyes? 
Notice, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. Those two statements are dramatic statements. This is not, and I want you to notice, it is not to open their eyes so that they may turn from hell to heaven. It is not so they may turn from judgment to no judgment. You realize that? This is, although those are true, right? But notice what he says. No, this salvation he's talking about is turning, and they're very active, turning from what? Darkness to light. Can I just stop on that one for just a second? I just want to throw a question out there. Why is it that so much of Christianity looks like a turn from darkness to nothingness? You ever notice that? Yeah, isn't it weird? Isn't it weird so often? It's like, I was, yes, I was a sinner. And now I'm a Christian. What does that look like? Huh? What? Well, the Bible tells us that the Spirit is at work in those who are saved, right? And He's doing what in them? We're transforming, we're sanctifying them, right? So what does that look like? Is that something that should be evidence, should show? Well, yeah. But so often what I hear in Christians is, well, yeah, I got saved, so I'm no longer hell-bound. I'm heaven-bound. And I look at people and they say that and I say, and? And? What does it look like? Well, according to this, it says it's from darkness to light. Does that ring a bell, Ken? A little bit? In our Monday night Bible study? 1 John 1, right? Absolutely. My goodness, this is exact it's like it's like Paul, even though 1 John wasn't written yet, it's like Paul's reading 1 John here. 1 John 1 describes what it looks like to be in the light. Probably better than any other passage in the scriptures. The opening of eyes is so they may turn, and please don't miss the point when it says so they may turn. It doesn't mean so hopefully. Cross your fingers. The Godhead's up there crossing their fingers hoping that they'll turn. That's not what may turn means. It means that they will. Because the idea is before there was, it was impossible, now it's not just possible, but it's real. So they may turn from darkness to light. And light evidences itself. We know that, right? If you're in pitch black darkness and you're trying to get out of this room, what would that look like? What's that? You'd be bumping into walls, you'd be bumping into chairs, you'd be bumping into tables, you'd be bumping into all these machines. Right? Wouldn't you? Trying to find your way out. And the result is going to be evident that you're bumping into all those things, won't it? Be very evident, right? But on the other hand, if there's light in here, what will it look like if you're trying to get out of the door? Just walk right out of the door, right? So do you think that being in light would be evident in that scenario? It would be, wouldn't it? Would it be obviously evident? 
Would you think there's something wrong with somebody if you're sitting here in this room, the lights are on, and the guy keeps running into walls, and he keeps running into tables and chairs? Think there's something wrong? Because you have light, and you're looking at it like, what is wrong with this guy, right? The contrast between that person and you would be what? Be stark, wouldn't it? It'd stand like a sore thumb, wouldn't it? Because you see all the chairs. You see the tables. And you see the doors. But that guy's blind. And he keeps running into stuff. Right? And because we're working off a spiritual analogy, that narrow way he's never going to find, is he? Few there be that find it. And the only way you find it is how? The light's on. Right? So you would expect then, wouldn't you, that if someone is moving, moved from darkness to light, you'd expect the evidence would be there, right? Yet that's not how people talk today. That's not the expectation too often anymore. It just isn't. That's why I keep using that illustration. I got my ticket in my pocket. I'm heaven bound. See, I got my ticket. Like, uh, uh. Really? Are you in the light? As he himself is also in the light? The text says right there in 1 John, if you are, what? We have fellowship one with another then, right? Ah, and it goes on from there. So it, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. And then he gives a second contrast from the power of Satan to God. And please, you've got to understand, when he says from the power of Satan, it means from the power of Satan to the power of God. Right? He's just not repeating the same word twice. The power of Satan to the power of God. Again, the, the, the pregnant question has to be asked. We know what the power of Satan... I'm sorry, let me change that. We know what the power of Satan evidences itself, right? In people's lives. Would you not expect that the power of God would evidence itself, Himself in your life? Oh. And since the power of God is more powerful than the power of Satan, because Satan is what? Defeated. And he's also not omnipotent and all the rest, right? And we know, according to Matthew 28, all power, all authority has been given to Christ. Correct? And He's promised to be with us forever, right? At the end of the age. You'd expect that would be evident, wouldn't you? Absolutely expect it. Saul and, and you and I are sent by God to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. Notice what he says next. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. That sins, that, that, which is referring to Christ's finished work on the cross, that Christ's finished work would have its effect and their sins would be forgiven. And a place among them are those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus said to Saul. Notice that last statement. Because up to this point in time, he's been talking about sanctification or 
Justification, absolutely. He's been talking about justification at this point, but notice he wraps it all up in his testimony, this section anyway, by saying, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Which means they're becoming more and more like Christ. Or as John put it, we're becoming more and more like our Father God and less and less like our old father Satan. Does that make sense? And so when he says that at at a place they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me means the only way they find a place among those who are sanctified is if they also are being sanctified, which implies also that they were justified. Right? And if they were justified, the idea here is if they were justified, they are going to be what? Sanctified. Because the forgiveness of sins is talking about justification, right? Verse 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, justification, and a place among those who are sanctified, referring to sanctification, and the way we find a place in there is because God is at work in us, sanctifying us. And He's doing that. Why? Because we were first forgiven or our sins were first justified. He who justifies, sanctifies, and he who sanctifies will ultimately glorify. Absolutely. And all of this, and boy, we best not miss this one, our justification is by faith in me, Right? If we're justified, it's be, not me, me, but I'm, I'm speaking as if I'm Christ here. By ju- we are justified. Bec- Thanks for correcting me there, Jim. I saw that. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, great. I'm now preaching heresy. <clears throat> we are justified because we've been given faith to believe in Christ, right? Does that make sense? In the same way, the sanctification, Jesus says, is by faith in me it's not like i was justified by faith now i work my my tail off in order to be sanctified that's not what it means my sanctification equally is by faith now we're active in it right where we weren't active in our justification we are active in our sanctification because we work our salvation sanctification by fear and trembling because he is at work in us right both to will and to work for his good pleasure we work because he's at work He started the work and He's continuing to work and we are merely responding to what He is doing. That's the idea. And if I'm in the light, then I'm going to desire, as you talked about in your confession this morning, I'm going to desire, I'm going to have desires because He's given me those desires to do what? To respond to His work. As that passage says. And it's all by faith. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. And that's the, the, the positionally sanctified is referring to the righteousness we've been given. We can't improve on that. But the, what, what, what we have, as you use the term, progressively is as we grow and change, and that's also by the Spirit. It's all by the Spirit. It's all by faith. And that's, that's uh, what's key here. So, what do we do with this text? 
you've heard me say, ask that question many times recently. What do we do with this text? I think there's a number of things we can ask ourselves and challenge ourselves with. Let me just start with just saying, throwing this out here. I think we ought to ask ourselves, <coughs> what's my purpose? Why, to put it another way, why did God save me? Why did he do so? And we must not say, well, because I was in the kingdom of darkness and, and, and he saved me so I don't go to hell anymore. That's clearly not the case. Although it's true. What's the purpose? And with regard to the purpose, what's his plan? Could I submit to you, this is one of the cool things about this, a lot of God's plan we know nothing about. And praise the Lord, because we'd be overwhelmed. Because he is infinite. But there are certain aspects of his plan he does reveal, and this is one of those. This is like what God just did is he pulled back the dark curtain that you can't see through, and he showed you something in this text, just like he did with Paul. He gives you a peek behind the curtain of God's plan. And that peek, he showed you that he saved you for a purpose and what the purpose is. Now, it's probably more multifaceted than just this. In fact, I say unequivocally it is. But this is the major purpose why he saved you. It is for what purpose? So that we could be servants, witnesses. Of what? His finished work on the cross. You know, I've heard people say, well, but you know what? I don't have the gift of evangelism. So? So? What does that have to do with the slice of bread in China? Or the price of bread in China? I mean, I said it wrong. Or the tea in China? Or whatever. I always, yeah. <laughs> what does that do with anything? I want you to notice that God didn't say that here. He didn't say, I saved you with a purpose and, and it is to be a witness, a servant and a witness of what I've accomplished to open people's eyes if you got the gift of evangelism. He didn't say that. You know what he really said? He said, if you're saved. If you're justified. That's what he said. That's the glimpse behind the curtain. What's your purpose? I think it's a little scary, but I need to, I need to say it. What does that mean? What does that mean if that purpose isn't being realized in you or me? What does that mean? It's a good challenge, isn't it? What does it mean? Maybe I haven't been appointed to eternal life. Maybe I haven't gotten saved yet. <laughs> Maybe I am appointed, but it's not been the time yet. I don't know. 
We must not fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm just thwarting his plan. What do we say about that? Can't. But it's an important question to ask, isn't it? We could probably ask ourselves another question. Why is it I live in fear over evangelism, over proclaiming Christ, over being sent, over being a servant and a witness? Why is it I live in fear of that? Now, there's many answers to that question. But ultimately, it does get back to the reason why I don't is because, I mean, it doesn't ultimately get back to this, but it does get back to this. I really, really don't glory in Christ. I don't. And can I just say this? We want to clean it all up and make it look a lot more neat than that and a lot more comfortable than that. But when we clean it up and make it more neat and comfortable than that, then there's no need for repentance over that. And there's absolutely a need for repentance over that. There absolutely is. I'm not glorying in Christ if I'm not proclaiming Him. If I'm living in fear, or even worse, it doesn't even show up on my radar screen. Repentance is necessary. Whether I'm a believer or not, the call is to repentance, right? To repent and believe. And that, I would argue, is the call of this text as we hear this. And as a matter of fact, when we get in just a little bit from now, the next passage we're going to see, people are going to react exactly that way, aren't they? That's exactly how they're going to respond. The only worst response we could have is no response at all. And that says something. It really does. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> As we go from here, I pray you will help us to be careful to know you and the Son who you've sent. I pray that your Spirit will work mightily in us, soften our hearts, draw us close. Help us to remember our purpose. Why you saved us. Ultimately, it is for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to be instruments that are fit for your use because of your mercy towards us. Help us to have the faith to follow you. Give us that. Glorify yourself in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.